In this episode, I talk with Dr. Jim McDavid, who is Professor Emeritus at the School of Public Administration, University of Victoria, which he joined as faculty in 1980. Jim was a recipient of the University of Victoria Alumni Teaching Award and received the University of Victoria's highest academic honor, the UVic Distinguished Professorship Award. He's contributed greatly to the field of evaluation. And the reason why I reached out to him relates to his work tying mindfulness and evaluation together. We cited his work on the relevance of mindfulness to evaluation in our paper published in the American Journal of Evaluation titled Supporting Evaluation Practice Through Mindfulness. Also, he recently co-authored a chapter in the book, Practical Wisdom for an Ethical Evaluation Practice that was titled Mindfulness and Practical Wisdom for Evaluators. During this episode, we talk about Jim's experience with mindfulness and meditation practice, how it's influenced him and how it affects our views and practices of evaluation. Regardless of whether you might be someone who's just sort of starting out as an evaluator or someone's very experienced, I think that the experiences, the suggestions, the ideas he conveys have a ton of utility and can inform your work. Our conversation covers a lot during this uh, podcast episode. We talk about practical wisdom, Jim's interest in the environment and challenges associated with determining cause and effect in evaluation. Really grateful for Jim for the time that he spent with me here talking about these things and uh, grateful for our discussion. Enjoy the episode. Yeah, Jim, thanks for, for joining me. Um, I, wa I wanted to ask you, first off, you know, wanted to talk to you a little bit about mindfulness and its relationship to evaluation. Um, could you speak to me about your, first off, your definition of mindfulness? Well, um, you know, I have to say that um, the way I came to mindfulness does make a difference to how I define it. Um, I started out using, or at least being inducted into transcendental meditation, and that was more or less just... Um, a graduate student thing that I was doing way back when. Um, since I've gotten more interested in mindfulness and its connections to evaluation, the definition I like to use is, um, is John Kabat-Zinn's definition. And really, uh, he evolved his definition over time. I think his first version of it was um, focused primarily on paying attention in the moment. Um, the idea being that um, you have some sort of object or process, um, a mantra or perhaps uh, your breath or your body, and you use that as a vehicle for focusing your attention. And that becomes a means by which um, you differentiate between what you're focusing on and all the thoughts and feelings that kind of run through your mind. And so that definition of mindfulness, I would think um, is, is sort of the basic version that I use. But the thing about it that's important is that it's uh, primarily secular. It doesn't necessarily attach itself to any philosophical or even religious um, history of mindfulness. And of course, uh, mindfulness is not something that was invented in the United States in the 1970s when Kabat-Zinn brought it in. Um, it was 
It is a very important tradition in the East, thousands of years. So in the original version, as I said, it was more or less intended to be instrumental. And uh, the version that I like to use now is you take that original version, then you add on to it um, what I would call the values and to some extent the commitments that go <clears throat> together with uh, practicing mindfulness, which is um, paying not only paying attention in the moment and doing those kinds of things on a regular basis, but um, frankly, um, you know, a commitment to being compassionate, doing no harm in the world. Uh, that can mean a whole lot of different things, but I think it does influence the way that we uh, work as evaluators as well as the way we work personally. And um, the idea of, um, of taking the sort of what I would call the ethical dimension of mindfulness and elevating that so that it becomes more important in one's practice. So, you know, long and short of it is my own definition of mindfulness continues to evolve. The, the longer I practice it, the more I find that the ethical dimension becomes more important in relation to the actual practice. The ethical dimension, how does that sort of, how does the ethical dimension emerge? Um, how is it, how is it related to the practice of mindfulness? Um, is it, uh, is it there that uh, when you practice mindfulness, then there's a certain honesty, a certain, a certain way in which you act that, that sort of emerges from uh, kind of really just noticing, noticing things in a, uh, what's going on in a non-judgmental way and so forth, or like, how does that, how do, how do those things tie in? Cause I've, I've heard that as well. And I heard about sin kind of bring, bring that in and others as well. Yeah. The ethical piece, um, the ethics. Yeah. Well, I, I think the connection for me, James is, is the idea of mindfulness and mindfulness practice. And if you start thinking about the connections with its ethical roots or its ethical context has to do with, um, with suffering. Um, now, you know, that's a very broad word, but basically the way I have interpreted suffering is that you, you work in the world and you do no harm. And that really means that you have to be um, mindful of how you interact with others. Um, compassion is a very important value. Uh, when you look at mindfulness from that point of view, there's lots and lots of stuff written about compassion, but basically it means having a sense of being able to put yourself in the other person's shoes and all religions, virtually all major religions in the world, have some version of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You can word that in the negative. Basically, it comes down to being able to put yourself where the other person is and think and act accordingly. So that instead of just reacting and here. The connection, I think, is, is important because when you're practicing mindfulness, at least when I'm practicing mindfulness, thoughts, feelings, all these things go through your mind. 
the practice is intended to create some sense of uh, distance between all that stuff that goes on in your mind and the practice itself. So it's almost as if um, you're trying to differentiate between the things that produce suffering in your own life and the practice of mindfulness. And, you know, there's all kinds of stuff written about human happiness. Um, you know, the pursuit of happiness is built into the way Americans think about themselves, even politically. But the people who practice mindfulness tend to think of happiness more as not, not suffering, not being attached to things either positively or negatively. So you were talking earlier about your experience with, with meditation and with um, your own practice kind of earlier on. Could you kind of walk us through that? Uh, you, you've, been, you've had a, a, your own practice for, for quite a while. How has that evolved over time? Um, could you well, maybe that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my practice has been on and off over all the years that I've been um, meditating. Um, I would say that it's evolved more towards um, a commitment to a lifestyle. Um, not eating meat, for example, is just one thing. I grew up on a farm in central Alberta where meat and potatoes was, was it. And so for me, uh, the switch to uh, moving away from meat um, is just one indication of recognizing that uh, the critters that we farm and particularly industrial farming, uh, the kind of suffering that happens in that whole life cycle is something that if you can think of it from an ethical point of view, we each of us have an individual responsibility for reducing suffering. So that's just one small way that I try to reduce suffering. So over time, my practice has uh, moved from, initially it was transcendental meditation. I did that off and on uh, for 30 years. And then more recently, um, I attended a 10 day retreat uh, where I learned the, the basics of Vipassana um, meditation. And um, that was really quite extraordinary. Um, being able to experience uh, Vipassana, being able to meditate eight, 10 hours a day for 10 days is really quite unique. And most of us, even when we practice, we meditate two hours a day, maybe less. And so the intensity really does make a difference in how you see the potential for that kind of practice. And so that's what I'm doing right now. And I find that each meditation is different. There's no sort of pattern. I try not to compare them. Uh, even though as an evaluator, my instinct is always to judge. And so suspending judgment, yeah. even in my own meditation practice has become uh, a very important part of, of how I see the evolution of my practice mm. so you've noticed that a uh, uh, that pattern come up that's something you've noticed uh sort of a, your awareness of of that inclination okay yeah. could you 
Could you speak to the difference between uh, transcendental meditation and vipassana med meditation? What, what is what was uh, the TA, what, uh, TM? Was it uh, like mantra med meditation? And then kind of can you explain kind of the differences and maybe how one um, your experience of the of the maybe the differences or, or how they're related um, in your life? Yeah, sure. Um, for me, transcendental meditation is primarily in your mind um, when you're inducted into transcendental meditation at least when i was inducted into transcendental meditation as a graduate student uh, you 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 get a mantra you're supposed to keep the mantra to yourself uh, you never forget the mantra i still own my mantra but it is a practice 20 minutes uh you know, in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. Um, it does involve focusing on the mantra. There's a very important difference between focusing and forcing. And that's a general principle of meditation practice, at least from my point of view. You don't force thoughts out of your own mind. You, you go with the mantra. The mantra takes you in a variety of different ways and you gently come back to the mantra, even though you're often distracted. So that was my experience with um, transcendental meditation. Vipassana is much more physical uh, because the version of Vipassana that I learned, uh, you learn body scanning. So you start by focusing on the breath and then yeah. you focus even more specifically on your nose and the part of your face where the breath goes and you sensitize your skin and that part of your body. I know I'm being a little bit graphic here, but you basically, you create, you create the capacity to focus on different parts of your body with the kind of attention it makes it possible to start, say, with your toes, scan upwards through your whole body, uh, the surface of your body, all the way to the crown of your head, and then the next meditation uh, from the top down. Now, my practice is, is not that elegant. Um, I find that I get caught at different points in my body. Mm -hmm. But basically, that, that style of meditation for me, connects my mind and my body in a way that transcendental meditation didn't. Did transcendental meditation help you, help prepare you for um, Vipassana meditation in some way? Did you see a relationship between the two in, in, that, in, that, in that way? Yes. I, I think that, uh, to be honest, I would recommend... Um, meditation in general. I don't think it has to be one kind. I think that the practice of meditation, which almost universally involves focusing the attention or focusing your attention on something, a mantra, your body, your breath, you know, a lot of different styles of meditation focus on the breath. And then there's ways of moving from that into the consideration of how meditation relates to your life and so on and so forth. But transcendental meditation was really intended, I think, at least from my point of view, uh, to make it possible to 
just relax, um, reduce tension. Uh, as a graduate student, I found that it was a very um, <clears throat> important asset. And, um, and so I practiced it uh, from that point of view. So the experience of being able to focus my attention on a mantra was preparation in a sense for being able to focus on my breath and then focus on my body. I've always had a, I would call something of a spiritual inclination, uh, but these kinds of meditation, I think, do complement each other. So there was a, a certain uh, a calmness that it helped you sort of cultivate. Um, also ability to, to focus. Is it really, is it both of those things? Um, I think that, that being able to actually practice is key to being able to get into a space where you feel your body, at least I feel my body relaxing. Mm -hmm. And that sense of calmness, and I will admit that there are some times when I'm practicing Vipassana where I simply fall asleep and uh, I'm dreaming and I wake up and realize that I've been dreaming, but I don't judge that because it's, it's a way of acknowledging that my body was so relaxed, mm -hmm. that I actually just lost consciousness. And it isn't like I wasn't, you know, aware. I mean, the, the transition from meditation to dreaming is very subtle. And uh, I think it's a pretty important part of just acknowledging the relationship between your body and your mind. Those sorts of things um, make it possible to um, practice meditation in such a way that um, over time, um, I found that now I look forward to meditating twice a day. And fortunately for me, I have time in my schedule. I know a lot of us are so busy that uh -huh. it's very difficult to do that. You mentioned the spiritual aspect. Could you speak a little bit more about that? How, how does this practice relate uh, to spiritual inclination or spiritual? What, what, was, what is the spiritual dimension of focusing on a, a mantra or focusing on the experience, your you know, present moment experience of your, of your body? What, what do you, how do you sort of, how would you explain that to others? How is well, that? You know, it's a little hard for me to put it in words. Um, but the way I look at it is the experience of meditating. And in particular, now, the experience of letting go of thoughts and feelings and recognizing that the kind of um, chatter that goes on in our brain um, is is the, always there it's uh, you know sometimes i get a song in my head and it gets it's like a an earworm and then you're stuck with the song <clears throat> until it finally works its way through the important thing is not to judge that and so <clears throat> maybe the most important thing is to realize that at a certain point what you're doing is you're cultivating compassion for yourself and I, my own view is that 
I don't think it's really possible to be compassionate uh, to other creatures unless you also experience compassion for yourself. And so those two things go hand in hand. And the process of meditating and bringing up these things and not judging them, uh, putting them in perspective, as it were, creates space to build and empathy uh, for who you are without judging whether that's good or bad. So, you know, trying to like reflect back, back on, on your, your practice through the years, uh, through the decades, right? Um, you know, thinking about it like from a counterfactual perspective, like what do you, what do you think you've, how has it impacted you as a person, first off, um, versus, if you, let's say you, you didn't practice that. And I know it's kind of, it's, it's very difficult to say, uh, maybe it's, uh, maybe, I don't know if it's a fair question, but what, what can you say that it's given you um, that we haven't covered so far? Yeah. Well, um, it's not entirely, <laughs> the counterfactual idea is not entirely theoretical because I mean, you look at me or look at others, many of us, who've practiced and then not practiced and then practiced and then not practiced. It's a single case design. I mean, look right. at it that way. So, you know, we, we evolve over time. So it, you, you still have rival hypotheses as it were, but, but uh -huh. the meditation experience uh, for me is associated with, um, with just being able to be calm or more calm if not during the whole day, at least during the time that I'm meditating. And, and that's not always the case, but at least there's ways in which you can say to yourself, I'm creating an opportunity to settle down. And it's a physiological thing. I mean, John Kabat-Zinn's introduction of mindfulness in the medical uh, teaching field in the United States in the 1970s was all about stress reduction for medical students and medical practitioners. And it's been extremely successful. And, you know, Kabat-Zinn started a whole movement and it continues to this day um, in medicine, as well as a whole lot of other professions. And now evaluators are beginning to discover it as well, which totally makes sense. But the whole point of, of, you know, practicing meditation over time, uh, and because I've evolved, um, it's a very subtle thing, but I'll give you an example that's pretty recent. Um, one of my theoretical interests right now in the evaluation field is how we perceive causes and effects. Now, as evaluators, program effectiveness is central to the work that we do. We have a whole armamentarium of methodologies that are aimed at essentially reducing the amount of uncertainty associated with understanding how a program works and more importantly, why it works and so on, all good. But the experience that I'm having now is that rather than try and canvas the different ways that evaluators have 
conceptualize causality in their written work. I'm trying to understand how I conceptualize causality in my everyday life. How do I know that one thing causes another? And it's a, it's a subjective thing. I am just beginning this process. But what I am doing is talking to other people informally, family, friends, trying to find out how they also know something causes something else. And, you know, part of it's evolutionary. I mean, we're designed to be able to perceive causes and effects. But the point I'm making is that meditation has opened the door to being able to actually see the importance of subjectivity in something that eventually I hope will be important for the whole field. I'm not even sure if I'm going to publish something out of this, but I know for me, causality has always been a major um, focus. I mean, I started my university career in the physical sciences and you know, the physical sciences, because mathematics, all the other kinds of things that go together with commitment to physical science, cause and effect is just, it's there. And you know, there's, there's a paradigm for it. And you know, when you've got research, or experiments, and so on and so forth, evaluation has just become so diverse, that the way we see causes and effects, um, as practitioners, um, varies from one group to another. We talk about paradigms, and it fascinates me that we cannot really say that we have a common understanding of what I consider to be one of the most important core kind of questions for evaluators. So all by way of saying is that meditation has opened a door for me to begin a different way of thinking about this. When you speak to subjectivity, are you speaking now and, and the, the diverse sort of understandings of causality, are you speaking to um, sort of the ontological aspects or the nature of, of reality and um, how that sort of uh, plays in? Is that, uh, or are you speaking more to just the various epistemologies and kind of ways in which we understand, you know, phenomena? Uh, we tested those. So yeah. Or, or is that, yeah. Well, is that, is that all relevant? Yeah. Here, here, here we run into, um, you know, physics, um, particularly if you look at um, um, the way physics is structured. I mean, it's all about equations and, you know, technically speaking, equations do not imply causality. Um, they, merely tell you how things are related to other things. And you need to infer causality through the application of different kinds of equations to situations where you can manipulate one thing and something else happens. Or alternatively, you observe the conjunction of things in a situation where you can rule out other causes, and so to speak. Okay. So there is there is something in the thinking that I'm I'm undertaking right now that is ontological because I I honestly wonder 
you know, if we look at reality from a quantum physical point of view, where, you know, um, we we are hardwired to be cause and effect, I wouldn't call us machines, but definitely we have a predilection for causes and effects because that was, and still is to some extent, a survival mechanism yeah. that we have as human beings. That's where we come from. But if you look at quantum physics, uh, where, you know, reality is almost entirely a matter of probabilities and you've got things going on where if you talk about causes and effects, it's a, not the same thing at all as the kind of understanding of causes and effects that we have in the macro world. So, you know, I don't dwell on that because frankly, I'm more interested in epistemologies of causes and effects. And so from that point of view, you know, looking at myself subjectively is a matter of saying, so what do I need to have in place to be able to tell whether something causes something else? What, what are the conditions? And I'm finding that meditation actually opens me up to being able to observe those things in myself without being so tied to the moment that I can at least begin to see patterns in ways that I don't think I would have been able to see if I hadn't been meditating very regularly for these years. So it gives you a, a better, a clearer sort of vision or, or insight into what, what is occurring. Is that, uh, is that what you're uh, sort of saying or is it something else? Well, there is more clarity, but I think that, you know, without belaboring it, uh, not being attached even to my own theoretical speculations or my own observations about causes and effects um, makes it possible to see things and at least pay attention to things that I might have missed otherwise. Okay. And so it, and the other thing that I sort of implied uh, a few moments ago, James, is that this way of looking at a problem in our mm -hmm. field is very different from the way I would have approached it um, before I really got into Vipassana meditation. So instead of canvassing the literature and trying to find out what people are doing, I've evolved something that's more immediate. And then once I get my own grounding, then I will dive into the literature and say, so do I agree with that? Do I disagree with that? And if so, why? So it's more like building a different way of approaching the problem. Okay, got it. The, um, what you were talking about just a moment ago, sort of like openness to various possibilities, kind of limiting or reducing the likelihood of uh, maybe cognitive bias, um, or at least uh, like, you know, the, the different like confirmation bias or disconfirmation bias, um, other types of biases that, that present. That's something we write about in our, in our paper. Um, is that, is that what you're, is there something there as well? Like noticing when we might discount things because they don't necessarily uh, converge or not consistent with what our, our preconceived notions were. Um, that's something we all do, I think, as, as human beings, right? 
But when you're trying to determine cause and effect, if you're closing yourself off to alternate possibilities, uh, alternate you know, data that might suggest you know other conclusions, then that can be problematic. It can lead you down the wrong path. Is there is there something there to what I'm saying? Is there something there? Can you maybe speak to that? Well, um, look at it this way. I mean, um, you know that during the time I was a physical science student. Um, what I took for granted is in at least some sort of nominal way, you get to see the things that you're manipulating and you get to actually test relationships uh, that are easily discernible in laboratory experiments. Okay, so um, observables, um, they're all around you. Now, you know, science has evolved a lot since um, I was a beginning student in that, but I think it would be fair to say that the objects that we have as evaluators are far more theoretical and far more difficult to define. And there's lots and lots of evaluators that just resist the whole idea of being able to define and measure um, aspects of social uh, interaction, social reality. Um, that's one of the whole areas of disputation in our field. So, you know, when you're looking at the kinds of things that we talk about, say, let's just take confirmation bias as an example. I think that that because of the work and because of the kinds of theories that we have, uh, given how abstract a lot of the objects and relationships are, um, really, we come into what I would call an empirical situation with, with belief systems or beliefs that um, very often when you um, are comparing those to data, the comparison isn't exact and there's so much measurement error and there's, you know, gaps. Um, I've been, been puzzled to some extent how um, multiple lines of evidence actually come together to deal with causality, but that's a different issue. But the main point is that I think confirmation bias is a big problem for evaluators. And part of the problem is is that we evaluators often find ourselves when we're working with clients in situations where um, there's an expectation, particularly by the people who operate programs with whom we interact, we have to interact in order to get data, that their programs will be effective. And so I know a lot of evaluation writing that I see now is unabashedly very um, um, much in the advocacy domain, the idea being that, you know, you, you should be trying to find the strengths of, of programs. Um, appreciative inquiry would be an example of that whole kind of approach. And the end result is that um, we can often be captured by patterns of evidence that are consistent with our beliefs and confirmation bias in that situation is a very real threat 
to the validity of our work. So we're thinking about how mindfulness can impact evaluators, which is the subject of the, the chapter that you will have and, and the uh, mindfulness and practical wisdom for evaluators. <laughs> and then our, our article, the supporting evaluation practice through mindfulness. Is that an, is that an area like, so it, it, when we're thinking about like, if, if you were to, you know, hang a sign and say, you know, these are the benefits of uh, mindfulness or meditation practice. This is why, you know, you should consider it, you know, as to, to other evaluators, what are, what are, what would be on that list? What would be sort of the benefits that you would imagine? Is it uh, reducing some, some types of cognitive bias, like uh, confirmation bias, or is it, are there other things as well? Some things that you've spoken about in terms of how it's impacted you, but are there other things that you would suggest or, or uh, uh, mention? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, there's two, two levels to, to talk about this, James. One, one is, so I think mindfulness practice opens up possibilities in our, in our heads, uh, in our thought patterns. Uh, it creates space to, um, to look at our own thoughts and patterns, to be reflective. Uh, that's critical. Uh, I think that mindfulness is a very important tool to develop what I call self-reflective capacity uh, in not only our professional work, but our personal work. But it's not sufficient. Uh, I think that if we're talking about ameliorating things like confirmation bias, uh, we need to recognize that, uh, that if we work alone, we are going to be more likely to be captured by our biases than if we work in teams. Now, I know lots of evaluations are done by small groups of people who, you know, are in the same company or the same organization. Uh, some of the work that I've done has been solo work where the expectation uh, by the client is that somehow, even if I don't say my work is objective, that it will be some, it will be authoritative. And I actually feel uneasy about that because I think that what we need to be prepared to do and mindfulness actually helps is, is to have our ideas, our conclusions, our perceptions of cause and effect relationships, if you want, challenged by others. Now, it doesn't have to be adversarial, but it has to be done in such a way that you are prepared to acknowledge that you missed something, that, um, that you may have been wrong, uh, that there are other ways in which you could see things that would be more fulsome in relation to a particular engagement. So all by way of saying is that, you know, mindfulness, I think is an important way of opening the door, but the way we do evaluation is, uh, is more than just um, relying on mindfulness. We need to be prepared to acknowledge that as human beings, um, we're always going to be tempted to draw our own conclusions. And in the absence of feedback, uh, we can get ourselves into situations where the work we do is just not credible. 
So to encourage collaborations that uh, uh, that uh, discour that's discourage or that that don't entail sort of groupthink, uh, where there's some challenging, where there's uh, some you know questioning of, of of data, findings, interpretations. That's that's a helpful thing. So having having others to work with as an evaluator is uh, evaluation teams can be a, a helpful aspect. It sounds like you're you're saying. Are there other uh, benefits uh, related to mindfulness for evaluators? Anything else you can uh, think about more uh, more broadly, even or or any other any other things that are worth mentioning? Well, um, what I want to do, James, is just connect mindfulness to um, a Greek notion, practical wisdom. Now. You know, mindfulness is, I would say, it's beginning to make inroads into our field. You know, the article that you published in the AJE in 2022 was well done. And uh, it made a difference to, I think, the way that people in our whole field will now see mindfulness. So instead of it being on the fringe, um, it, it is now something that people are going to say, well, maybe this is something that we ought to consider, particularly if we have aspirations for being a proto-profession. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, so mindfulness encourages reflection, uh, self-reflection, mindfulness. Um, I think, frankly, if you practice it, uh, encourages humility. Uh, one of the important things for me as a practitioner is what I call beginner's mind. Um, you don't judge any meditation by some standard. You just go with what it is that you're trying to do. That doesn't mean that you just fall asleep every time. But the whole point is that there's ways of um, approaching your own practice that carry over into how we think about the work that we do professionally. So, you know, practical wisdom, of course, is bigger than that. But basically, practical wisdom fundamentally is about ethical action. And the important thing about practical wisdom, at least the way um, people um, talk about it now, Aristotle's view has been superseded to some extent, but now, what we think of as practical wisdom is, so how do we practice in such a way that when we make a decision, we're taking into account not only our craft, uh, the skills, the methodologies, and so on and so forth that we have as evaluators, or any professional for that matter, and the, the idea of somehow melding that with an ethical stance so that you're making the right decision for the right reasons in that particular context. Now, it sounds sort of magical. And one of the challenges, and I think of practical wisdom, is that we very much don't yet know how to measure it in its fulsome way. But for me, connecting mindfulness to uh, sort of the grounding of skills, um, knowledge, um, even a worldview that is consistent with practical wisdom makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, you know, I, I'm looking 
forward to reading that that chapter. I don't have that that book yet, but I'm uh, going to get it and and uh, and uh, looking forward. To, I haven't seen that chapter yet, so I'm looking forward to that. You know, working with uh, with different programs, program staff, other evaluators. Are there aspects to mindfulness practice or different techniques or practices that you've ever used or incorporated um, in your interactions? The uh, there's there's that uh, uh, there's an article on ex, uh, uh, excessive uh, evaluation anxiety uh, that we cite in our yeah. in our paper right um, that, that phenomenon where a lot of times are the the clients you know the individuals we're working with are running the programs they get sort of you know very anxious about the whole process of working with an evaluator being evaluated um, has that has mindfulness, kind of what we're talking about generally, if it's mindfulness or, or something otherwise, uh, has it emerged sort of in, in how you work with, with others? Um, and not just in terms of your, your own, how you bring yourself uh, to the experience or an interaction, but in terms of how you might structure interactions or how you might uh, work, ways in which you would... Uh, kind of lead or run uh, workshops, sessions, you know, working sessions, that kind of thing. So is there anything there uh, that, uh, that, uh, that you've used or thought about using? Well, um, I, I will say this, that um, when I'm thinking about interacting with others, particularly in evaluation situations. And I, I agree with you. I think that there is very definitely something called evaluation anxiety. And, you know, one of the challenges of our field is, is balancing the need to get at what's really going on with the, the fears, anxieties of the people with whom we're interacting. Um, maybe not the clients, but definitely the people whose programs or policies are being evaluated slash judged. Mm, yeah. And so the, the question is, how, how, do you, how do you mitigate that? Well, there's a very simple thing, and it doesn't necessarily need to be connected with mindfulness, but I find that it is, in fact, um, an attribute of mindfulness, and that is just listening. Uh, being able to be in the moment, um, <clears throat> listening to people in such a way that you convey a sincere wish to understand what it is they're saying, paying attention not only to their words, but also all the other kinds of cues and so on and so forth, and doing that in a way that's respectful and doesn't um, convey that you're just basically confirming your own suspicions. So again, it's open-mindedness. It has to do with a spirit that, you know, people who do qualitative research in particular understand this. Uh, but I think evaluators, you know, when they put on a hat of, I'm coming in and I'm going to make pronouncements about your program, <clears throat> You know, for me, the, the problem that we have as evaluators is the perception by a lot of people that all the work that we do is summative. Um, and really, most of the work that we do is formative. It's intended to improve things, 
But when you tell people that, it's not enough. You need to convey that by your own behavior, by your own actions, and by your interactions with other people. Uh, so you model it through uh, through a real uh, uh, through through your experience with them, through really uh, your interactions, your, how you communicate with them, really hearing them. Yeah, I've I've noticed with with myself when I worked as a therapist, and now that I you know I work with other with uh, different organizations and so forth as an evaluator. My training as a, as a counselor, I would, I would notice my own kind of judgments, my thoughts, my sort of you know my all those things coming in my going on in my head and how they affected me, and just sort of noticing those and then kind of letting them pass has been um, as it, it's been a, a challenge, but it's uh, it's it's a quite an, an eye opener um, uh, for me, or it's been an eye opener for me, and it's been something that's. Um, it's an it's an ongoing practice. It's an ongoing uh, you know process. Yeah, yeah. Noticing, noticing my own sort of you know preconceived notions, my the the judgments that I might come to just in a conversation um, with with somebody in this kind of context. It, it's uh, it's so ubiquitous. It's so constant, and it's and it's and it requires just a you know constant like a vigilance almost or, or awareness of it. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think one of the things about our whole field is the is the tension between um, this kind of role that we have as evaluators to judge. Uh, now that goes right back to Michael Scriven. You know, what what do evaluators do that's quintessentially about evaluation? Well, we make judgments of merit and worth, and you know, other people have added significance. But the point is, you make judgments. And, and those judgments um, involve comparing, uh, they involve some sort of implicit um, um, either yes, you made the grade or no, you didn't make the grade. But that stance being a judge is, I think, really fundamentally different from the stance that you take as a practitioner of mindfulness, where you don't judge. You don't judge yourself. You don't judge your own thoughts. Um, and by, you know, implication through compassion, through empathy, empathy um, you're not judging other people. So there's ways in which I think it influences not only our own view of ourselves, but also our inner personal behavior professionally. Let me uh, ask you, someone, you know, younger evaluators or just other evaluators who are, might be hearing this or kind of coming across this, uh, these, some of these ideas, where, what are some areas, where, where would you maybe suggest people start if they're interested in doing some kind of uh, practice that enhances mindfulness or exploring this in some way, just kind of dipping the toes in, into this? What, what are some ideas you have around that or any recommendations you might have? Um, well, um, the chapter that Anna uh, Coughlin and I co-authored that um, is in um, this book. Um, yes. Uh, this has just been published. And, um, and I would recommend it because not only does it offer um, evaluators some practical advice if you want to get into understanding 
the practice of mindfulness, but it also situates mindfulness um, as a sort of what I would call North American um, or at least neo-Western movement. So that would be one place to start. Um, the other source of information um, is a series of articles by, um, by the Rosens, R-U-S-S-O-N. Now they appeared in the Interdisciplinary Journal of Evaluation, the online journal, the open version. And they were really started from 2008, went to 2012 or 13. And we referenced those in the chapter that Anna and I co-authored. And um, those articles are a little more discursive because that approach to mindfulness is more self-consciously connecting mindfulness to its spiritual and religious roots. Whereas the chapter that we co-authored is more about, let's treat it as, as a secular kind of movement that can make a difference to the evaluation field. It certainly made a difference to medicine and a variety of other professions. Um, so that would be one source that I would recommend. In terms of, uh, pr of starting to do some kind of practice, are there any, if someone was starting out, would you say that try Vipassana practice or a transcendental meditation or other type of practice, or is it just kind of, uh, is there, are there su suggestions around, uh, uh, you know, resources for personal practice too, that you might have? Yeah. Um, I, I would recommend now here's, here's a connection that is a little more lateral. Um, one of the things that I, um, was surprised by, um, was, um, reading, uh, Juval Noah Harari's books, um, Homo sapien, or sapiens, and Homo Deus. And I read those books without knowing that he's a practitioner of Vipassana meditation, has been for 20 years. And those books, I think, are, from at least from my point of view, an essential read. Yeah. You want to understand how what I call Western society, a really global society is going to evolve in the presence of uh, artificial intelligence and our increasing kind of mastery of technology. But the real problem is the absence of values and goals for humanity. And so I read those books and I thought to myself, this person is an alien. I mean, it's literally, it's, it's like, the perspective on humanity and the way that we're evolving was almost as if it were written by someone who's standing outside the human race. And then lo and behold, he dedicates the books to his, his guru in Vipassana meditation. And I thought to myself, well, you know, there is something there. So, you know, it's, it's not a recommendation that is intended to, kind of get you into practice. But those two books, uh, from my point of view, are an essential read if we want to try and understand 
the implications of the evolution of our kind of culture, science-based approach to reality that is now dominating the whole planet. Yeah, I think he he practices uh, two hours a day and and goes on retreat uh, every year. And when when I saw that too, it was uh, yeah. it was it was it was interesting how he references that as kind of a uh, it it gives it, it gives him that perspective uh, and uh, sharp sort of like insight. Yeah, ability to you know to to, to study and and present um, some some really lucid uh, ideas and and a greater sort of understanding of, of where we are as humanity and how we got here and where we're potentially going. Yeah. Well, great. Uh, did you have any questions for me as we kind of wrap up? I, I, I know that through our email, you mentioned you might have some questions for me, but uh, if you do, that's great. If not, that's all right too. But uh, I, I wanted to, to open that up as well before we wrap up. Well, um, I've appreciated our conversation, James. Um... You know, I had made some notes to myself, uh, but um, there's a point where you just kind of launch into things. And so we've done that. Um, and, yeah. you know, I, I will add one more thing for myself. And this is, again, a connection with mindfulness. Um, I'm more and more concerned as a human being, and as an evaluator about the impacts of climate change. And so work that I'm doing with a colleague here at the University of Victoria, her name is Astrid Brussel. Um, we're trying to understand possible ways in which evaluation as a field can be transformed to focus more explicitly on um, what we call global health. And the kinds of values that are embodied in that view of our field are, in my way of thinking, broadly consistent with what I call mindfulness thinking. So uh, I'll just make that connection. And, um, you know, I just, I'm curious about you, um, you know, how long have you been practicing? And, um, what form of meditation are you practicing for yourself? Yeah, well, well first off, I, I appreciate you mentioning that. Uh, and if, if there's some if you if there's some articles or some kind of references about the work that you're doing, we can put it I can put it in the show notes um, so I can share. The, my, my own practice is about seven years ago, I started a basically a Vipassana practice. And the last uh, kind of two years, it's been more of a, a uh, focusing uh, on awareness so itself. So the object is uh, sort of rather than an external object like breath or the body or just you know experience, focusing on on uh, uh, on, on awareness itself. So that's been my my practice. Really, uh, just uh, twenty minutes a day. So not not very long. I've I gone to uh, one retreat. Uh, but it's helped. But it's helped me a lot. It's helped me in terms of over the years, in terms of just a, a calmness or like emotionally, it's helped. And then I have this sort of a kind of an ADHD kind of uh, kind of proclivity or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So that it's helped with my ability to focus too. So those have been two things that then that are, that supported in in the literature a bit and or uh, quite a bit. And so it's it's been helpful from from that perspective. 
uh, in my own life. And I use it in my evaluation more in my evaluation work more in terms of like how it impacts me and how I come to an experience, to a, an interaction and encounter rather than leading formal, I, like in the, in the uh, article that my colleagues mentioned, uh, some of the stuff that they do uh, when they run, when they have, you know, different workshops and different run sessions with, with the clients or uh, evaluate with uh, administrators, uh, folks who run programs and so forth as uh, stakeholders. Uh, for me, it's more about just sort of my own development and then, you know, bringing myself fully to the, uh, to the experience. And yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's really, that's it. And I, and I see myself sort of very much in the beginning part and that's an evolving kind of, kind of a, a thing that I'm learning more, more about. And I've had periods of time where I'll meditate more and other times less, but I typically do it every day. And also trying to, to bring like that uh, mindfulness practice outside of formal meditation. So that when I'm just, you know, washing the dishes or going on a walk, mm. trying to, to, to bring that there. So not just a, a meditation, but also outside of it as well. Yeah. So that's yeah, my well, yeah. Well said, um, you know, beginner's mind is very important. I don't think that I will ever get beyond that. Uh, I don't think of my, my commitment as some sort of a ladder. I think it's more lateral and, um, and who knows where it will lead. Um, it is, I do find it curious how people make a commitment to a whole lifestyle where you become, eventually become a monk or a nun. Uh, I've known some people who really, their aspiration in life is to become um, completely committed to um, the kind of uh, Buddhist practice that uh, they are a part of. And I look at those folks and frankly, I admire them because uh, to be able to sort of step away from all the things that uh, capture us um, in our work and our daily lives is pretty amazing. Uh, I'm not that kind of person, but I do understand the value of being able to uh, let go of things periodically. Well, Jim, this, is, this has been a great discussion. Maybe we'll have a, a TIG form on, on contemplative practice or uh, got to work on that, on, uh, or a mindfulness or something like that. We can have something that's that uh, maybe this will sort of catch on with AA. We'll see. We'll see what will happen. Yeah. But, uh, thanks for, Fred, thanks really much, very much for, for talking with me. The time kind of flew by for me. And uh, look forward to, to, uh, to talking more, staying in touch. All right. Thank you, James.